along the way, at a place where they spent the night, the Lord met Moses and tried to kill him. But Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Truly you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. That little episode near the end of the fourth chapter of Exodus has got to be one of the strangest episodes in the Bible. It is one that, frankly, we usually avoid and would probably be happier if it didn't exist at all. We don't know what to do with it. It certainly doesn't reflect well on God, who suddenly attacks and tries to murder his servant Moses. It also comes out of nowhere in the whole Exodus story. It has almost nothing to do with what goes before it and after it. Nothing obvious, anyways. And yet, it is there. Someone, at some point in the history of the development of this text, felt that it was really important. I think that it is an episode that is ripe for retelling from the point of view of those who liked it and felt that it was an essential part of the scriptures. This is Retelling the Bible. Episode 2.2, A Bridegroom of Blood. Moses had arrived among the tribes of Midian as a refugee, a member of a race of enslaved people he had lived a more privileged life than most of them. He had been fostered to a noble Egyptian family and grew up among them. They had even been kind to him in some ways, but they had never let him forget who he was or where he had come from. Nevertheless, he had grown up thinking that there was some sort of cloak of protection around him that his adoptive family would be on his side if push came to shove. But then push did come to shove, and all of Moses's illusions came crashing down around him. As he grew into a hot-headed adolescent, Moses came to see how the slave class was treated in the land along the shores of the Nile, and he was appalled. Unreasonable demands, brutal abuse and punishment, they were all routine. Something snapped in the usually well-balanced and thoughtful young man, and he got into a fight with one of the worst of the slave drivers, a fight that ended very badly for the other guy. But in some ways it ended worse for Moses. He quickly learned that no one, not even the woman he had called mother all his life, not even those of his own race for that matter, would defend him or help him. Running away had been the only thing that he could do. The Midianites had welcomed him warmly. They lived far enough from the Nile Valley that they had a certain independence from the powerful pharaoh 
who ruled there. And they were glad to have a good, hard worker. A local priest even offered Moses his daughter, Zipporah, in marriage. Moses loved the years he spent with the Midianites. Something in their nomadic lifestyle spoke to his spirit. It was from them that he learned all of the secrets of living in the inhospitable Sinai desert. They taught him the secrets of the springs that looked like rocks, how you could come to certain springs at certain times of the year, and it would look as if the spring had completely disappeared. You would only see rocks and stones all about. But this was because the water in this place was rich in minerals that would be deposited all around the mouth of the spring and could eventually build up so much that they blocked the flow of water almost completely. The head of the spring would look like just another rock, but an experienced nomad, one who knew where the spring was located, only needed to take a staff and strike it until the fouled mouth was cleared and the water could flow free again. They taught him about the annual quail migration, and how, if you were in the right place at the right time, you would see great clouds of birds descending from the sky. They were so exhausted from their long flight that they could be harvested like grain. They would just sit there while the nomads gathered them and prepared a great feast. They also warned him that if the birds were not properly cleaned and cooked, terrible disease could often follow. And, of course, they told him about the manna, a food of last resort that could be gathered by traveling bands amid groves of tamarisk trees. Moses gained the trust of the tribe's people and he was soon caring for large herds of goats and sheep. He loved to travel with them far afield, taking only a few slaves along with him, because he loved the isolation and privacy and the vast beauty of the desert places. Life with Zipporah and the tribesmen was so good that he began to forget his people in Egypt. He didn't miss his Egyptian family in the least. They hadn't stood with him when it had mattered. And he felt as if he hardly knew the people that he had come from. He really felt that it was best if they were forgotten. From what he had seen, the oppression they suffered in Egypt was so hard, the fires of their affliction burned so hot, that they would soon be extinguished, lost to history forever like so many other subjugated people had been. Maybe the sooner, the better. A small bush was burning up on the side of the mountain. There was nothing unique about that. The landscape was incredibly hot and dry. It didn't take much to get a good brush fire going. But there was such little fuel for the fires that they quickly burned out, and, provided you were careful, there was little danger. So, while Moses had kept his eyes on the bush all afternoon, and had been careful 
to keep his goats away from the mountainside. He hadn't really worried about it. But the darn thing hadn't gone out. It had just kept burning for hours. He got intrigued and eventually decided that he just had to climb up there and take a look. The strange phenomenon didn't make any more sense as he got closer. There was nothing that seemed to explain why this particular bush kept burning. I mean, maybe this was a harder wood than most. But even then, it should have burned out by now. Maybe the blaze was fed by some unseen fuel. Who knew? But the night was falling. The flocks were together and safe under the watchful eyes of the servants. So Moses lay down his belongings, took off his sandals, and sat down to contemplate this mystery. It had been a long time. He had thought he had completely forgotten about them, but his thoughts turned back to his kinsfolk in Egypt. They were like this bush, weren't they? Caught up in the fire of the Pharaoh's power that sought to use them, consume all of their strength and ability, until they had been utterly wasted. <laughs> then the Pharaoh would discard them like so many ashes and invade some new land where he would find fresh slaves. The Inferno would always find new fuel. He remembered his people and how they suffered. He remembered their faces and their struggles. A wind came up out of the west as he sat there thinking, and as it howled over the landscape, he fancied that he heard the sound of his people as they cried out in their despair. For the first time in a long time, Moses wept for his people who were surely lost. Moses finally dried his eyes and looked up to see that the bush before him was still burning. How could that be? How was it possible that the branches and trunk had not turned to ash? It was a moonless night by now, incredibly dark. And Moses pinched himself, wondering if he had fallen asleep, and he was just dreaming that the bush could still be burning. And then he understood it. This wasn't about the bush. They were still alive. Yes, they were in the midst of a blazing inferno in the midst of Egypt, but his kinsfolk still lived, still prayed to their God, and had not utterly given in to despair. The mere fact that they had not been consumed in the fires of their affliction was a miracle, proof that the God of their ancestors had not forgotten them. Moses began to realize that that same God had something for him to do. Bye.
officers returned to his tent the next day. He knew what he had to do. He told his wife, Zipporah, that they were going, that he was going back to Egypt, and that she and their young sons would be going with him. Zipporah knew her husband by this time, knew that there was nothing to be discussed. He had seen a god. His path was clear. Her job was to support him. It took days to get everything organized and ready. Moses sought out his father-in-law, the only real father figure he'd ever known and gratefully obtained his blessing for the journey. He felt so impatient. As he'd been up there on that mountainside, contemplating the bush, he had resisted doing this. Surely, he had argued, someone else would be better suited to the job of leading his people out of slavery and into freedom. There were so many excuses. No one would believe that God had sent him. He wasn't even a good speaker, so no one would listen. He didn't even know anything about this God of his ancestors. How could he possibly represent him? But the excuses didn't cut it, and he felt compelled, despite all of his shortcomings, to go and do whatever he could for his own people. He thought that when he finally got on the road, his discomfort with all of his years of complacency in the face of the suffering of his people would disappear, that he would feel better. But he didn't feel better. He felt worse. The thing that really began to gnaw on him was the God who was sending him, the God who he had encountered at the burning bush. He knew so little about this God. He had grown up among the Egyptians, whose days were filled with acts of worship and devotion to various gods. And they were gods that you could deal with. There were statues and pictures of them, sacred precincts and established priesthoods. You knew where you stood with them, at least. Even if some of the stories the Egyptians told about their gods seemed a bit silly. But the slave people didn't have any of that. Their god was harder to get a bead on. No one knew what he looked like. There were no statues or engravings. The slaves had been more likely to encounter this god in random places out in the open than in some temple. How do you pin down a god like that? There was one thing in particular that Moses didn't understand about this God of his people. It was the whole circumcision thing. He knew about circumcision, of course. It was a common practice in Egypt to cut off the foreskin of a man's penis. But for the Egyptians, and the Midianites, and for all civilized people, really, it was something that was done at the proper time, when a young man came of age and was ready to become sexually active. 
it was an event that Moses remembered in his own life with pride, that day when he had become a man. But the primitive slave folk that Moses had come from, he knew, had the barbaric practice of circumcising their boys while they were still infants. And they said that they did it because it was what their God wanted. As his family traveled towards Egypt, Moses found his eyes continually wandering towards his young sons, Gershom and Eliezer. Gershom was old enough now to walk the great distances on his own, and even to help out along the way, while Eliezer was still nursing, and so often in his mother's strong arms. He couldn't imagine these beautiful sons of his being mutilated, at least not before the right time. What kind of a god would demand something like that? It was... it was indecent. Moses knew that Zipporah would feel the same way as he did, so he didn't even bring the subject up with her. But he knew that he couldn't possibly come before the slave folk and claim to speak for their god without them wondering why it was that his own children were not circumcised. He kept it all inside, but it ate away at him. His stomach was upset. He stopped eating. His sleep was constantly interrupted by dark dreams. Moses, frankly, was a mess. Zipporah knew what was going on. Of course she did. She was a smart woman, and she had heard the stories that were told of the primitive beliefs of the Egyptian slave class. She also knew her husband better than anyone. It didn't take much for her to put two and two together as she watched Moses fall into his deep, silent funk. On top of that, there was the fact that he talked in his sleep, like, all the time. He argued and wrestled with this god that he had met on the mountain, cried out the names of Gershom and Eliezer, and, oh, oh, the blood! How he went on and on about the blood! Some nights it seemed as if he was drowning in it. The man was clearly tormented. It was getting so bad that she was beginning to wonder if the whole thing was actually going to kill him. Eventually, Zipporah had had enough. She was barely getting enough sleep as it was with the travel and the nursing. After a few nights of being wakened by her tormented husband, she knew what she had to do. Moses was startled awake by the sudden lighting of a lamp, followed a few moments later by the sound of Eliezer's wail. Still half caught up in one of his regular nightmares, he looked around wildly. Were they being robbed? Had marauders attacked the house where they were staying? No. It turned out that it was much worse than that. There, in the half-light, 
crouched his wife, holding a bloody knife made out of flint. Blood was running down her upheld fingers, and there was a spurt of blood on her left cheek. It was so much like one of his worst nightmares that he actually screamed. She pulled up his bedclothes, and he felt a small, wet smack against his groin. He looked down, horrified, to see that she had thrown a small, bloody bit of flesh on him. It was Eliezer's foreskin. Here, take it, you bloody bridegroom, she spat. You know that you were going to have to take it eventually, anyways. Things actually got better after that. The boy healed up quickly, and when they performed the operation on his older brothers a few days later, the boy submitted to it stoically, with only a few tears. Moses found a peace in finally giving into what he still suspected were the barbaric practices of his people. When he finally met up with them in the land of Goshen, he felt sure that they would feel more like his own people than ever before. And for someone who had never really felt like he belonged anywhere, somehow that was very comforting. The story of Moses and the exodus from Egypt is a story that is very hard to nail down historically. If it all really happened in the way that it is told in the Bible, if a massive tribe of slaves escaped from bondage in Egypt, plundered the Egyptians of their greatest treasures, and then wandered around in the desert for 40 years with huge encampments and many livestock, well, you would expect events like that to leave some traces. There would be ancient documents and monuments that made references. Archaeologists would find the traces of such a massive migration. The mere fact that there is no evidence to be found, apart from what is written in the scriptures, and some of that is frankly not overly consistent, has made many scholars doubt that any such thing ever happened. So, I don't know exactly what true history lies behind the biblical story of the Exodus, if any. But I do know that it is a pretty amazing story, and that its themes of liberty, salvation, and a God who cares about the people who are at the very bottom of society have powerfully inspired people to stand up for justice down through the ages. I also suspect that it is a story that reflects some very real struggles that the people of Israel went through as they came to know and trust in the God whom they would call Yahweh. What kind of worship did this God require? What kind of worship space? 
And how did these people come to believe, unlike the people of the nations around them, that this God wanted them to circumcise infant males rather than adolescent males? These perplexing questions are worked out in stories like this one, and they would have been told over and over again. That is it for this second episode in the second season of Retelling the Bible. I am your storyteller, W. Scott McCandless. If you have enjoyed this story, please come back next week for another take on an ancient biblical story. Tell other people and rate and review this episode on iTunes or some other podcasting platform to help other people find it. Our theme music is Ada, and the mood music for this episode is Phantasm. This fabulous music is by Kevin McLeod and is licensed under the Creative Commons. You can find it at incompetech.com. Send your requests, comments, and questions to at Retelling Bible on Twitter or to our Facebook page, Retelling the Bible. Show notes and commentary for this episode will be posted at retellingthebible.wordpress.com. See you next week.